The Plumley Pod, episode 26. Prepare to lift the lid on all things education, not indoctrination. Your voice of reason for home education. The Plumley Pod. And welcome to the Plumley Pod. I'm your host, Sarah Plumley, and this morning I have the delight of welcoming Professor Gloria Moss back to speak with us. Good morning, Professor Moss, and thank you for coming back to talk to us so soon. Oh, it's my pleasure, Sarah. It's lovely to talk to you again. I'm intrigued about our next topic. Last time we spoke extensively about the problems in secondary school education, and obviously that's my soapbox. I love talking about problems in secondary schools. And your emphasis last time was on the problems in textbooks, and it was fascinating. I urge anybody who hasn't listened to the previous incarnation of this podcast with Professor Moss to go back and listen to that one, because I learned a lot, and it's an area of particular interest to me. So uh, if I learn from I am sure you will do. But this morning, we're going to be talking about universities, because it may have occurred to you that there are some serious problems going on with university education all over the world, but we're probably going to focus primarily on the UK. But this is something that is uh, can be spotted anywhere now. And what I'm talking about really here is the infiltration of our universities. The way I see it, cultural Marxism has been flushed through all of the institutions, but particularly through universities for at least the last 50 years, probably more so. Now, when I say cultural Marxism, people tend to glaze over and switch off. So just let me give you a good example that anybody can see. If you can see the pushing of the LGBTQ or diversity inclusion equity agendas, you know, the guys with the blue hair and the bull rings in their nose and all that sort of stuff, then that's what I'm talking about. That's like a a colourful, very colourful, rainbow-coloured physical representation of what we're talking about here. Now, you might think, well, you know, people uh, being gay and being happy and wearing rainbows isn't a big problem. And on a surface level, I would absolutely agree with you. However, it's what underpins, it's, it's where has this agenda come from and why is it being pushed? Why are people being pressured? Those, These are the kinds of things that I'm super, super interested in. However, In talking to Professor Moss, I found that there are even more problems, even more problems, quite dark problems and and seriously concerning problems for anybody who is interested in society and the state of humanity, not just those people who are interested in universities. But what the problem we are having is that the influence that universities have on all of our lives, whether you recognise it or not. So I'm going to shut up and ask Professor Moss, first of all, the big question, please explain to us why are universities so important? Well, I think universities are in a pivotal position because they control the qualification system, the entry system, if you like, to multiple professions. I mean, let, let's think about this together. Which, which, which professions are no-go areas unless you have a university degree? Lawyers, Do you want to name a the few? law. Yep. Sure. Uh, so law, uh, medicine. Teaching. Is, mm. Of course, yeah. Academics. Veterinary science, what else do you have to... Uh, accountancy, I think you can go a non-university route, but I think the lion's share comes yes. from universities these days. Mm-hmm. Architecture, mm-hmm. I would say. Architects. Engineering. Very important. They learn how to... Building. Yeah. Bridges. Yeah. We need people who know how to do bridges properly, right? Yes. Uh, dentistry and so on and so forth. So they have a pivotal role in our society if only because they control the qualification system. 
But it goes further than that, as you've already hinted at. They're also gatekeepers for information and what passes as bona fide information, unless it's got through peer review, which is controlled by the university system. People will often question whether information is reliable and valid. So they they control knowledge. And as we know from Sir Francis Bacon, former Lord Chancellor of England, knowledge is power. So they're very powerful institutions because they have a very powerful role in controlling what passes as knowledge in our society. And now the question then is, yeah, knowledge is power, but power for whom? Is it power for the people, us, or is it power that serves the system? And these are two very different types of information. I mean, what's helpful to us, the people, may not be helpful to the system and vice versa. And, well, it was the third president of the United States, Jefferson, who warned us that the people cannot expect to be safe without information. He means the right sort of information. And he actually said that if a nation expects to be ignorant and free, it expects what never was and never will be. And this is what led him to say that the people cannot be safe without information and the right sort of information. And so quite apart from the fact that they control the qualification system, the university's stranglehold on information puts them in an absolutely key position in society. So information, let's just think about that for a little bit. Um, I think it can be used to good ends and to bad ends. So Malcolm Forbes said that education's purpose is to replace an empty mind with an open one. Martin Luther King talked about the function of education and teaching as to help people think intensively and critically. I'll just say that again because those are very powerful words. The function of education is to guide people in thinking intensively and critically. And one of the people who had substantial influence on European education was a German polymath, naturalist, explorer by the name of Humboldt, and his life straddled the 18th and 19th centuries. And he presented a vision of universities as places in which knowledge would be advanced by original and critical investigation in a disinterested search for truth. In other words, a search for knowledge that wouldn't be guided by vested interests or genders. No, that would be completely impartial and disinterested. And he had substantial influence on universities, both in Germany and beyond Germany. Now, these are, these are examples of information that serves the people. But equally, <laughs> there are plenty of examples of people who very happily would use information to serve the system. And Frederick the Great of Prussia, Germany as was, came from a very different place from Humboldt. He actually said that if soldiers would begin to think, then not one of them would remain in the army. And he said that an educated people can easily be governed on the presumption that they're taught the right things. So here we have the idea that information can be used by the establishment to serve the establishment and not necessarily for people's benefit. And in that tradition, I would put John D. Rockefeller, who actually said that I don't want a nation of thinkers. No, 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 far from it. I don't want a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. So here we have the idea. And how dare um, he? Of, how dare Rockefeller? How dare he? 
Yes. Yeah, how dare he? He uh, set up the education board, the Board of Education of the United States, I think in about 1903 or some sometime around there. How dare he? Mm. Uh, if he's not interested in thinkers, he has no place in, in academia or education. Academia and education is the very definition of, of thinking. That's, that's what we're supposed to be facilitating. So he, he had no rights in, in having anything to do with education if that's his attitude. I think that's appalling, truly appalling, that he was allowed to uh, encourage to be in charge or to set up the, the Board of Education. It's disgraceful. Well, uh, it is dreadful. Uh, but that tradition isn't dead, I would say. It's alive and, and well in Britain today. So as schools <laughs> minister in 2015, um, he actually said education is the engine of the economy, which isn't a million miles away from what Rockefeller was saying. And we'll see later that um, uh, Gavin Williamson, who was um, Education um, Secretary of State, described humanities courses at universities as courses that are low value. I, I don't joke. This, this, that is the phrase he used. And, and in his mind, humanities courses, that's courses in English, history, modern languages, archaeology, these are low value because the graduates... Uh, he thought, who came out from those courses, would earn less than graduates studying STEM, science, technology subjects. I mean, he may not be right in actual fact, but even were he to be right, uh, we could argue, I'm sure, Sarah, as to whether the purpose of university education, in our minds at least, is to prepare people for the world of work. You also can't have one without the other. And by that... Next, but, say, say more. Say, say more. Sorry, by that I mean that you can't have these STEM people going off on on a, a tangent. Imagine if you had a science that was ungoverned by any kind of humanities. So you you that's kind of like the ethics side of everything, isn't it? You can't yeah. just have a bunch of science maths geeks doing stuff in laboratories because they need to have some kind of governance with regard to uh, humanity, with, with regard to what is right, morality, and all these kinds of important questions that the likes of philosophy... So parts of English literature would look into those kinds of things. Mm. And of course, history, that it's not right. To, you can't have one without the other. It's, I think that's extremely um, myopic of him to have said something like that. Well, that's a fascinating thought that life becomes a lot more dangerous when we lose people whose thinking is influenced by humanities. I absolutely agree. If we're talking at a personal level, my first degree was in French language and literature. I spent four years doing very little else other than reading French literature, which is what I wanted to do. French poetry, French novels, French plays. Uh, it was only later I went on and studied something practical. I went to the London School of Economics and studied personnel management, as it was called then. It's human resources today. And that moved me from the humanities to the social sciences. And I found that a very, very instructive move. But my goodness, I... I I, I don't regret for a day that I studied French. It, it's really enriched my life in ways that can't be accounted for by money. But anyway, back to the central role of universities in controlling information. Well, what we've said between us, I think, is that information can be used for the good, for people to enlighten them, and it can be used for the bad by those controlling society in order to um, suppress people, control their thinking. And it was a best-selling novelist, Tom Clancy, who said that if you can control information, you can control people. So this begs the question, 
in terms of universities. How is information controlled by universities? Is it controlled beneficently or not? And if we find that it's not beneficent, then what are we going to do about it? If I um, anticipate what we might be saying at the end of our conversation, we might be saying that we do need to seriously start creating new institutions of learning, perhaps built more on Humboldt's principles that we talked about earlier. And there is a new initiative, truthuniversity.co.uk, which has started. It's already got applicants for its courses. And a couple of conferences with a harbinger, if you like, for truthuniversity.co.uk. These are the um, questioning conferences, questioning history and questioning science conferences. And speaking of that, the next questioning science conference is coming up in the Peak District, in the beautiful, interesting Peak District, at the beginning of next month, 10 to the 14th of August. Fantastic speakers include Mark Devlin, John Hamer, Eve Gilmore, just to name a few. And if you want to be amongst sizzling minds, both speakers and attendees, then just email learningholidays at protonmail.com. That's learningholidays at protonmail.com. And uh, you'll be sent information on this event, which is now under three weeks away and just a few rooms left. So, so if, if, you, if it sounds interesting to you, then just uh, send off an email and you'll get some information back straight away. And the quality of debate at these conferences was so high that the next step was an obvious one, namely to create a new university, truthuniversity.co.uk. So you can go to the website and see how critical thinking is put very much at the heart of that. Anyway, back to information. We said that universities, one of their functions is to control information. So how do they do it? Well, I'd like to suggest that there are five, five methods, and we'll unpick each of these, Sarah and I, as we go through these. But if I just list out the five methods that I think are used, then I'd maybe you'd like to add to these, I don't know, Sarah, but I'd put in first place, not necessarily encouraging critical thinking as point one. Point B, and this is a bit of a hot potato, the issue of standards and whether standards are being maintained. So the whole issue of standards would be the second point. Thirdly, the style of management used in these institutions. I would suggest that a facilitative style rather than an authoritarian one is likely to encourage critical thinking. But an authoritarian style, if you imagine working in one of these institutions and you've got authoritarian bosses, I think that's more likely to encourage the academic staff to toe the line and make sure that they do whatever they're asked to do. In other words, follow instructions. It stifles creativity. Yes. Uh, I think authoritarian management is a, is a, a terrible thing to do to creative people because yes. if you think about the way theatre is made, the directors of live theatre who are authoritarian in style always get less out of their actors and actresses than those who are more facilitative, more supportive. The creative process in and of itself, and most people don't realise this, but Almost all professional theatre only has a three-week rehearsal period. So you will take a play and you have just three weeks to get that play on its feet from first read-through with the actors to the opening night, the press nights, where the press come and review the whole show. And it's a, it's, it's a very stressful process for everybody involved. But especially if your director is authoritarian, it completely 
sets the actors on edge and you get much less for your money. Those actors and actresses are put off by the authoritarian or dictatorial style directors. You know, it's not like um, a sports team where something of, of high creativity, of, of possibly even of artistic value, a piece of art. It's a delicate matter. There's a great line in the play by Timberlake Vertenbaker. The play is called Our Country's Good, Our Country's Good. And it says that there is a modesty attached to the process of creation which must be respected. Mm. And I I think if universities took this attitude, we would be in a much, much better place already. Well, that's fascinating. Um, If I briefly preempt my thoughts on management in universities, because I've worked in several universities over my career in in universities, um, which incidentally hasn't been the whole of my life, my professional life, before I went into working for universities full-time, I was working in industry as a training and development manager. Um, and as I mentioned, I studied personnel management at, at the LSE. So I'm, I'm very interested in leadership styles because a leader can make or break an organization, as I'm sure you know, Sarah, from your experiences. Um, but if I preempt what I, what, I, what I felt about higher education, um, was that, what I felt was that it was surprisingly authoritarian the leadership of, of universities, and not just in one university, but in several universities. And uh, I found this very surprising because, like you, I would have expected that the management of teachers and researchers, creative people, should be in the hands of people who were um, facilitative, shall we say, rather than authoritarian. And I went on to do extensive research on leadership and wrote a book in 2019 called Inclusive Leadership, which discussed the remarkable benefits of the kind of leadership that you discussed there, Sarah, the facilitative leadership um, that you discussed um, getting, as getting the best results out of acting, actors and acting. I found exactly the same in industry, that a facilitative style of leadership would, in people's perceptions anyway, boost their performance, boost their motivation, and boost their mental well-being. And an authoritarian style would do the reverse. In other words, it would lower people's perceptions of their own productivity, their motivation, and their mental well-being. But in the course of writing that book, I interviewed some very senior people in universities to ask about their thoughts on leadership. And I, I recall one person telling me and I recorded this in the book, actually, that a lot of academics, people who go into universities, expecting that they'll be able to roll back the frontiers of knowledge and be creative, are very surprised to find them in a system that's actually extremely controlling. It's the antithesis of what you would expect it to be, isn't it? If you're supposed to be pushing the boundaries of knowledge yeah. and learning, then you expect that that would be a creative environment, an environment where debate is encouraged, you wouldn't expect to have authoritarian leadership. It's not a football team. It's not a you know a, an army situ- like a armed forces situation. It, this, this is supposed to be a seat of learning. I have a quite a, a large amount of experience in in very very different spheres. So, for example, theatre, sport. I've done both of those things to a, a pretty interesting level. So, I'm not only coming at this from a, a teaching and learning perspective as a, as a classroom teacher, but also as, as these other things, as a sportswoman, as an actress. Mm. What mm. I've learned is, is this, that authority can only be given 
not taken. Authority can only be given, it cannot be taken. Because if you ta- if you try to enforce authority over somebody who is unwilling, they will resist you no matter what. They will be reluctant, they will resist. If you give authority to somebody, you might well listen to them, you might well allow them to treat you in an authoritarian manner in certain strict circumstances. And I would say, for example, if I was captain of a football team, sometimes the management style for footballers it, it is necessarily authoritarian. However, we still have to willingly give ourselves over to that authority. Those kind of coaches that come in and try to enforce from top down, I'm an authority over you, they always fail. I've seen them come and I've seen them go in, over my career. I, I saw this in cricket coaching as well especially when cricket coaches, male cricket coaches were coaching women's teams. I I would see them come and I would see them go and we'd say, oh, here's a new one. Here's a new authority figure. He's on a power trip. He won't be here very long, will he? And lo and behold, you get somebody else in with a different style. My theory, my thesis is authority can only be given. It can never be taken. Yes. But of course, the question of what style of leadership is appropriate in a university depends on what you think the outcome of the university should be. If you think it should be power to the people, do you remember we talked about two uses of information at the beginning, then you might expect perhaps a facilitative style. On the other hand, if you think that the purpose of universities, uh, or if you consider that their real function is to actually put a lid on information, then at that point, you really would want authoritarian management, perhaps. Oh, yeah. We've seen the results of that, haven't we? (laughs) It's pretty important. So we're looking at the question, how is information controlled? We've talked about it's controlled by the extent to which students are encouraged to think critically. It's controlled by standards. It's controlled by the style of leadership in an institution. Of course, it's also controlled by the funding mechanism into an institution. And last, but by no means least, it's controlled by the exercise or not of academic freedoms, the freedom for academics to publish, speak freely about their findings. So I thought we could perhaps spend a little bit of time looking at these five elements, starting with whether universities encourage critical thinking or not. And somebody with vast experience, professor of philosophy, Zizek, author of more than 50 books, he has talked about the pressures of university metrics transforming universities into factories producing experts. Those are his words. He thinks that the metrics, you know, that the league tables of universities uh, uh, classified according to their teaching and research excellence, these metrics are transforming universities into factories producing experts, which he believes are stopping free intellectual inquiry. And he goes so far as to say that he thinks this process is nothing short of an attack on the public process of reason and the end of intellectual life as we know it. I mean, this is, this is shocking. Uh, and you might say, well, is he a lone voice? Uh, and regret- regrettably, I have to say, he's not. So the erstwhile philosopher Sir Roger Scruton, author, similarly prolific, of 52 works of nonfiction, Uh, I'm going to quote what he said. What he said was this, that if the university renounces its calling in the matter of truth-directed argument, truth-directed argument, then we 
lose the university as an institution and it becomes something else. It becomes indoctrination without a doctrine and a way of closing the mind. And from what he saw happening in universities, and my goodness, he spent an awful lot of his professional life working in universities, whether in the UK or the US. Uh, For example, he worked as a professor of philosophy at Birkbeck College London for many years, scaling the heights of the hierarchy and eventually becoming a professor there. He described universities as, quotes, losing all sense of their role as guardian of the intellectual life. And he actually advocated, Sarah, closing state-sponsored universities. Now, regrettably, he died in 2020, so he can no longer contribute to this debate. But there are others who who are contributing. Oh, gosh, we could think of a lot. But if I just name one other person, Alex Preston, a prize-winning novelist. One of his novels is, is, has the title this, Bleeding City. He wrote that the liberal education, that type of education that seeks to provide students with more than merely professional qualifications, appears to be dying and dying a long and painful death. He said this in 2015, so seven years ago now. And you might say, well, he was a novelist. What would he know? But in fact, not only did he read English at Oxford University, but he now teaches creative writing at the University of Kent. So he's well positioned to give us his opinion. Um, So it appears from these very eminent critics that critical thinking is a bit of a casualty in today's universities. I don't know if you want to say anything about that, Sarah. You were talking about when we talked before about your perception of young graduates today and their ability to debate. Yeah, we were talking earlier about uh, the complete lack of ability in, in debating skills from present-day graduates. And it would seem that the more recent the graduate, the less able they are to debate. So if you perhaps have a, a differing opinion to one of the more so-called modern graduates, they are seemingly unable to hold an idea in their mind without re- immediately rejecting it. It's almost as if they, they you, you throw out an idea and the modern-day graduate will either immediately agree and take that idea in or immediately repel it. They, they seem to not be able to cons- pause and consider an alternate point of view and to, and to think around why that alternate point of view might be correct. So the traditional way in which we would debate and or write essays even, where you have to put your arguments for and the arguments against before you are allowed to draw conclusions, it would seem that that whole section where you have to argue against your own argument has been removed somehow, almost surgically removed from the ability of of modern day graduates. And I I can't tell you how this was done. I have have a fair idea why it was done. And I I think perhaps uh, Sir Roger Scruton was was onto something when he was advocating closing state-sponsored universities. I don't know if you wanted to maybe dig into a little bit more why he thought that. I have I have a sense of why he probably thought that, but it would be wonderful to hear a little bit more on it. Well, yes. I mean, I, I can't second guess what, what, what he was thinking when he said that. But uh, we'll come to funding in a little, little while. But the funding that governments do provide to universities provides a tool of control. And, oh, in so many ways controlling teaching, controlling research. Um, I mean, those are two very different mechanisms. And the control of teaching can happen through oh, multiple, multiple means. 
Um, but one is through graduate outcomes. And one of the measures being introduced now is a measure of the proportion of graduates who work their way into managerial positions following graduation. And if a university can't demonstrate a percentage, I think it's 60%, who achieve that, then their funding is at risk. Now, is that the purpose of a university, you might ask, to channel their students into managerial positions? I mean, it's one of the things, presumably, um, that led Gavin Williamson to talk about humanities degree courses as being low value. And do you remember... Well, it's a very interesting idea. Well, I, I noticed that in industry, graduate managers are not welcome. I noticed that an awful lot of people who are very, very good at their role, perhaps they are hands-on engineers. Um, my husband used to work for uh, Mars Confectionery. He was an engineer. And uh, he doesn't say very nice things about graduate management. Uh, he, he prefers management that had worked its way up and had actually been through the, the roles and the jobs that he'd had to do previously and therefore had a better uh, kinesthetic understanding of what the business actually did and how the factory was run and how certain machines operated mm. and what the inherent uh, vulnerabilities of those machines were. But then you would get like a, a parachute management person from a, a university uh, chucked in mm. there, a, a, you know, some graduate who didn't well, he, I, I won't say what he said, but not knowing, you know, bottoms from elbows had something uh, mm-hmm. something uh, to do with it. But it, there's an awful lot of people who who are very resentful, I think, of, of some of the the management or the managers that, that come out of universities. Well, that's a really interesting perception. And I think your husband's thinking mirrors my own because, oh, before I went into academia full time, I, I mentioned that I worked in industry as a training and development manager. And one of the jobs that I had was on um, Britain's largest manufacturing site, just outside Derby. And it was a chemical factory. And uh, I was responsible for training across this very extensive site. You had to to get into a car to go from one end of the site to the other. It was that large. And I remember uh, interviewing the heads of different works in the factory because there were several different business units all working together on on this factory. And one of my discoveries was that those works managers who were often in charge of 24-hour complex operations had all worked their way up from the bottom, just as you were saying, Sarah. And when I decided what what I would do with the apprenticeship scheme, that was one of my responsibilities, I decided to create a ladder of opportunity so that people coming in from school to serve an apprenticeship could then go on in the fullness of time to get a degree. Because that is seemed to be what, what worked for the works managers in the factory. So I absolutely agree with your husband. Um, working your way out from the bottom gives you enormous skills that perhaps can't be matched by the person parachuted straight in from university. But of course, the other way... The same can be observed in the public sector. Uh, Sorry, I was just going to add that the I've worked as a postie, as a postperson for quite some time, and we had the exact same problem there. The managers that had come up through the ranks that had, you know, been a postie on a bicycle and then a postie in a van and had worked Mm. their way up through management tend to fare much better in terms of being able to manage a post a post office, as in a delivery office, they tended to fare much better than the, their counterparts who'd been fast tracked through the graduate program. So there was a graduate scheme of management, and then there was a the the other avenue of management, and it it 
for some, again the same the same kind of com- the exact same kind of complaints as my husband had on a, uh, working in a, a large uh, factory type organization the exact same things in in, in what was a uh, I, I know it's been privatized more so now the royal mail but back back in the day when when it was a, a, a public service the exact same attitudes could could be observed towards the managers that were had worked their ways way up through the the ranks uh, quote unquote the proper way that's Ooh. the way that the boys in the in the post used to talk about it and those that had been parachuted in from universities tended to fare much much worse in the long run yes i mean that's not to say there aren't exceptions but you know it's it's all very interesting and then of course fund universities can influence thinking through the funding of research and there are many res- so-called research councils for different disciplines which if you like provide money to universities for research in those discipline areas. So there's one for the arts and humanities, for example, another one for the social sciences, another one for the medical sciences, and so on and so forth. And if if you look at the calls for research funding, you'll often see that they're heavily directed. They're not open-ended, these calls. They're, They're very specific in the kind of research that they're looking for. I remember looking through calls from the Medical Research Council and looking at calls in relation to cancer treatment. Uh, and uh, I don't know if I was surprised or not to find that the calls were largely in the areas of conventional cancer treatments, radiotherapy, chemotherapy, and so on. Um, there, were, there was no space for research that went beyond those conventional means of treatment. So maybe these are the sort of thoughts that Sir Roger Scruton had when he thought that universities should move away from state funding and state regulation, because regulation is is what, I suppose, steers universities in these directions as much as funding does. But we were asking, you know, we were talking about critical thinking. What is it in the system that can be arresting critical thinking? And I wonder if it's something to do with, (laughs) dare I say it, what Goebbels, the chief propagandist for the Nazi party talked about, uh, namely that if you repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. And so we know that a lot of universities are uh, repeating truths, or alleged truths, on, what would you say, climate change, um, gender, a whole host of other things. And if those truths are repeated often enough, and, and not questions, then those then those, it could be untruths, used to say, they will become embedded in people's minds as truths. And that is known as the illusory truth effect, that if you repeat something enough times, people will take it as gospel truth without questioning it. In other words, repetition can lead to belief. And that is, if you think about it, at the heart of advertising and, and PR. And the father of PR um, was somebody called Bernays, who wrote a book called The Engineering of Consent. And this idea of repetition being at the heart of engineering consent is very strongly indicated in Bernays' book. Sarah, you were going to say something. Yeah, you just, uh, well, it's, is, is it not also uh, public health tyranny? That's where that comes from, repeating, uh, quote unquote, the truth over and over again. If you repeat masks work often enough, it becomes it becomes official, oh. doesn't it? It becomes the official perception, mm. e- even if there is no scientific evidence whatsoever to support the wearing of masks in non-pharmaceutical settings. 
that's a a wonderful um, example. It's not just, you know, universities. It isn't just uh, political parties. It isn't just at university. But if public health, wherever, um, you know, repeats something often enough, isn't that the reason why they were doing everything in threes as well? Like hands, face, face, and all of that sort of thing. So that it was easy to repeat over and over again because it was there were very, very short things. One thing, another thing, another thing. Mm. Everything in threes, short things. Yes, six feet apart, all of these. Everything's in threes so that you can repeat it often. Yes, the rule of three is very powerful. Yeah, like Caesar's, I came, I saw. Propaganda, advertising and public health tyranny. Yes. Aha, yeah, Vendi Vidi Vicey, nice. Yes, (laughs) and more besides. Um, And when I was last chatting to you, uh, as you said, said, I was talking about school textbooks and... um, yeah, there was a lot of presentation of information as as fact rather than as information for debate. Um, and uh, when I looked at some magazines targeted at geography A-level students, my goodness, article after article was presenting information on climate change as fact rather than as information for debate. So maybe this is where some of this absence of critical thinking is coming from. Um, but anyway, time being short, let, let, let's move on to a second factor that controls information. And, that, and that's the kind of standards that students are being taught that they're going to be measured by. And I don't know, you, 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 you're a GCSE marker, so you, you're, you're the doyen of marking amongst many other things, Sarah. But it, but it, I would imagine that if people think that the standards are extremely high and they know that in order to achieve a high mark, they have to show evidence of high levels of critical thinking, then that behaviour will be strongly encouraged. Um, so the issue of whether standards are being maintained in higher education is an absolutely critical one. And I don't want to pass judgment on that thorny question. But if I just quote the percentage of students who are gaining first-class degrees over a period of time, then that may give us some indication because um, universities should be maintaining standards over a period of time. The question is, are they? I'll leave that to the listener to decide, but let me just present you with some basic statistics. In the mid-1990s, a tiny 7% of students were being awarded first-class degrees. So if you were a student in the 90s or before that, then you would know that in order to get the top accolade of a first-class degree, you would need to show extremely high levels of critical thinking skills. And so that was the position in the mid-1990s. Fast forward 20 years or so till you get to 2009 slash 10, And that figure has doubled to 14%. And then close on 10 years after that, 2018-19, that figure has doubled, by my reckoning, to 28%, followed by another rise in 2019-20 to 35%. And then we reached 36% of all students getting first-class degrees in 2020-2021. So what is happening here? And that's a bit of a rhetorical question. Are students getting incredibly brighter or are standards slipping? I don't know if you have any thoughts on this from your marking experience, Sarah. 
<laughs> As somebody who's just marked the higher tier GCSE mathematics for summer 2022, I can categorically tell you that standards are not being maintained. They are through the floor. I am quite tired of being told by higher, candid- higher tier candidates, so that is the top third. So roughly the top third of the country takes the higher tier paper for GCSE mathematics at age 16. Having just marked uh, 15,804 questions, I was alarmed at the number of students that told me that 48 divided by 8 was 5. 48 divided by 8 is 5. Now, maybe you might make a mistake and, you know, give me a a, a wrong answer (gasps) of, 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 say, 7. I could possibly understand that, but 5? 5? The 5 times table ends in a 0 or a 5. My primary school children know that. So what is happening? Like, I, mm. well, I, I have some ideas. Mm. I will be presenting my findings, coincidentally, on the 4th of August. Uh, the 4th of August at 8pm, I'm doing a Zoom called The State of State Education. It's part of my series, Rescue Your Children. Rescue Your Children mm. on the 4th, 5th, 6th of August at 8pm. I'll be doing that via Zoom. And on the 4th, the first night, I'll be sharing my findings from this, marking this year's GCSE examination papers for mathematics. And I have to say, they are shocking, Truly, but I, I will save that for them. Mm. But to, to answer your point, yes, certainly standards are through the floor. Uh, we are absolutely not maintaining standards. In fact, the opposite is happening. Well, that leaves me speechless, but not surprised, shall we say. So let's let's move on to the next mm-hmm. factor that will um, affect the way information is passed on. And we, we've already touched on this, the subject of leadership style. Now, if we, if we go back in time, to the original universities. And incidentally, the word universities, or the word university in the singular, comes from the Latin universitas magistrorum et scholarium, which means nothing more than a group of teachers and scholars. That was your original university, a group of teachers and scholars. So no vast hierarchy there. It was just a group of people who got together, teachers and scholars, to learn and be taught and to teach. Not so now. No, no, no. Now, vice chancellors are remote figureheads with, shall we say, lottery style salaries. If I just quote a couple, when I last looked into this, the vice chancellor at Exeter University owned a mouth watering £584,000 a year. And that was in 2019-20. Um, I think that compares with the British Prime Minister, who's on, what's it, £150,000 for looking after the whole country. Um, and then there, these are pretty remote characters uh, at the top of a very high hierarchy. Typically, you have a vice-chancellor, a deputy vice-chancellor, um, a pro-vice-chancellor, and then you go t- down the ladder. What do we have next? Then we have deans, deputy deans, professors, associate professors, assistant professors, readers, senior lecturers, lecturer, uh, and they. some universities have even introduced a junior lecturer, great to save money, I would say. Uh, so very, very hierarchical and very, very different from the original universities. So that makes the people at the top, the vice chancellors, very remote by definition. And one piece of research actually found that in one university, uh, only 5% of the students could actually put a name to the vice chancellor at the top of the university. 
So that, that, that really shows how, how remote they are. This remote management creates an authoritarian style, almost by definition. And this, this authoritarian style of management is not always the most pleasant thing to be, to find yourself working in. It's not, it creates a culture, it creates a, an authoritarian culture that can, in turn, foster bullying and harassment. I'm not so much thinking of students here, but of staff. And, and regrettably, there are recent examples of quite senior academics who've been forced out of the system, I'd say bullied out, often for saying the wrong things, wrong in inverted commas, or for coming up with the wrong research findings. Again, wrong in inverted commas. A couple of examples will make this clear. One comes from across the pond, Julie Ponesse, former professor of ethics at the University of Western Ontario. I believe that's the largest university um, in the West of Canada. She was dismissed for insisting on her right to refuse an experimental jab. She was a professor of ethics (laughs) and um, she refused an experimental jab and she lost her job because of it. And then back here in the UK, Chris Exley, and some of your listeners may know of his work, he was formerly professor of bio-inorganic chemistry at Keele University. His work was um, tirelessly researching the effects of aluminium on humans, and these were often toxic effects. So his work, some would say, was of immense value, but it seems that he had no option, according to his own account of what happened to him, to resign. He had no option but to resign after the university shut down his research funding website because without funding, no professor can survive. And I mentioned Truth University earlier on, and a book published by them coming out probably on 10th of August. The title is, you may want to make a note of this, The Dark Side of Academia, How Truth is Suppressed. This book details how a professor of management was lent on by the university that she worked at and bullied out of her job for, what was the sin? For writing about best practice leadership, (laughs) arguably in a sector with worst practice authoritarian leadership. So that becomes a bit of a crime. Um, And this is similar in many ways to what we are reading about now concerning the judiciary. And I don't know if you've read about this, Sarah, alleged bullying by the police of defence teams bullied out of defending people that <laughs> the police estimation shouldn't really be defended. Um, so what's happening in academia may not be unique, but it's uniquely important because the stock in trade of universities is in information, and it looks as though important information is being sidelined, um, and that authoritarian management is one of the things that's facilitating that. If you move on from that, let's look at two final factors, funding and academic freedoms. Um, We've already touched on funding, and I think I mentioned the importance, well, the control that governments can exercise over universities by virtue of funding. And that's still very important, even if the volume of money that's being supplied to universities by governments is actually reducing. So over the period, for example, the 10-year period between 2007 and 2017, the income that was funneled 
from, from government to universities went down from £7 billion to £3 billion, so more than halved over that 10-year period between 2007 and 2017. And that shortfall was made up um, by grants from industry. And so <laughs> here, we, uh, here we, we find ourselves another den of vipers. And I'm sure many of your listeners know about the role of the Gates Foundation, for example, in funding universities. By the end of 2018, I think it was, they had funneled $185 million to Imperial College London and a further $79 million, I think it was, during the COVID outbreak. And then another big player, the Wellcome Trust, um, had supplied $400 million by that date. So, of course, what, what, what do you expect to happen when universities that receiving end of large volumes of funding from either a particular sector or a particular funder, um, well, they'll follow their bidding more often than not. And when we were having a little chat before we started, you talked about Gates scholars, I think, Sarah. I don't know if you want to talk a bit about that. Just that I think it's disgraceful that he's uh, allowed to fund university places. He's, he, he, there's a massive conflict of interest, isn't it? You, you can't have somebody mm. who has uh, so much influence over so many different areas of ordinary people's everyday lives. F- you know, funding, the, the, an investigation needs to be had in, into uh, the, not the, not the individuals who are necessarily taking on the scholarship. It's probably not even their fault. Many of them may well have been recommended for it or whatever. But I'm talking about the, the actual system itself. Like, do we want, does the British public want to have Bill Gates scholars in the United Kingdom? I would suggest that if we spent some time investigating that and we presented it in a, a way that's easy to understand to the British public, that they certainly would conclude that, no, we do not want uh, Bill Gates anywhere near young scholars. Thank you very much. Mm. Yes. Um, for some reason, he was offered an honorary doctorate, I believe, at Cambridge University. Um, but I think whatever whatever we say about him, I think most people would agree that when industry pays for research, or for that matter, governments, then they can call the tune. And I'm not on my own in saying that. No, no. Um, the, the former editor of one of the premier medical journals the New England Journal for Medicine, no less. This was um, Harvard professor of medicine, Professor Relman. He actually uh, stated that the academic institutions of this country, by which he meant America, are allowing themselves to be the paid agents of the pharmaceutical industry. I'll just repeat that because it's so extraordinary what Professor Relman said. That was the Harvard professor of medicine. He said that the academic institutions of America are allowing themselves to be the paid agents of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that funders have massive influence on what is researched <laughs> and the outcomes of research. And, and very often they also hold the copyright on the research, which restricts the freedom of the academic to actually A, do any more work in that area, and B, publish on that area. And I had that experience myself personally when I was doing research on leadership. It's wonderful research, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have the funding to do this research. But we created a survey as part of the research, and the copyright on that survey, 
that my team created was vested with the funder, which meant that I couldn't do any more research using that survey after the the, the term of the the research had come to an end. So um, yes, funding is, a, is has a very big influence on information. And the last point that I want to highlight is the issue of academic freedom. Academic freedom is a unique freedom allegedly bestowed on universities. The freedom to speak about topics, publish on topics, however controversial they may be. And for as long as we have academic freedom, then you might say, despite all the other issues we've looked at, the authoritarian management, the funding, whatever's happening to standards, if we can still retain academic freedom, freedoms, then you might say, all is fine and well. So what's happening with academic freedoms? Well, again, I'd like to refer to others. And in the first instance, a professor emeritus of education at the University of Derby. Emeritus means he's no longer working there. This is Dennis Hayes, who was professor of education at the University of Derby. And he was also, interestingly and importantly, director of a group called Academics for Academic Freedom. And he stated that universities cannot really be said to be universities unless they follow and allow unrestricted freedom of speech. And I think we'd all agree with that. So where are we now? Well, there was a a ranking started by the Spiked magazine, and it was called the Spiked Free Speech University Rankings. Um, Now, unfortunately, they only (laughs) produced statistics for one year. That was in 2018. And the the, um, ranking stopped shortly afterwards. (laughs) Why why, why would that be, one wonders? But but what they wrote in that one year of their rankings was that, in their view and their findings, censorship in universities was a, quotes, chronic problem. Yeah, I'll say that again. They found that censorship in universities was a chronic problem. And according to their statistics, 55 of universities were actively censoring speech. 39% were stifling speech through excessive regulation. And I hate to say this, but they found that just 6% of universities were truly free, open places. So this makes rather grim reading. um, And it's disturbing to see that those statistics didn't continue beyond 2018. But how how is it that, what, what could some of the factors be that are underpinning these rather horrendous statistics? Well, again, I'd like to suggest there are at least five factors, one of which is, well, I put it as down as a, a narrowed government research agenda. I mentioned what you find if you look at the um, Medical Research Council calls for research. And I said that they're fairly restricted. And I would say that this is, this is fairly common across all the research councils. So you'll find repeated reference to calls for research on climate change, uh, calls for research in that respect on low carbon trade opportunities, for example, uh, calls for research on artificial intelligence. I remember seeing calls for a project learning to like robots, calls for research abound on vaccination, drugs driverless vehicles, globalizations. I I saw no evidence of money's calls for research, that is, um, no research, of course, research for research critiquing these concepts. What else is leading to 
the repression of academic freedom? Well, I think we'd have to we'd have to refer to authoritarian management yet again. And um, there's a professor of modern history at Cambridge University who's president of the uh, Royal Historical Society, Peter Mandler. Uh, I'll just quote what he thinks. He speaks of a, quote, dramatically growing gap between the senior management at most universities and their working academics. So here's a very distinguished academic at Cambridge University speaking of a dramatically growing gap between the senior management at most universities and their working academics. Uh, and he goes on to say that senior management, even if they were once academics, now seem to be following a completely different agenda, very much set by government policy. Now, those are his words, not mine. And management doesn't have to be like this. Do you remember what we said about the first universities? They were simply groups of teachers and learners who got together. And I'm fascinated by organization. That's that's where my professional career started, understanding organizations. And some of our most successful organizations have the opposite of, of steep hierarchies. I mean, if we take a, a firm called Gore-Tex that supplied the material um, that they used at Wimbledon when they wanted to cover the main court there. The founder of Gore-Tex, who's Bill Gore, what he said is very similar to what you said, Sarah, earlier on. He said, authoritarians cannot impose commitments. They can only impose commands. Now, they're a very, very successful firm, Gore-Tex. <laughs> the company generates about $3 billion each year. Uh, they, they employ about 10,000 employees in 30 countries. And they have no more than about three layers in their organization structure. It can work having a a short rather than steep hierarchy. And yet universities have these humongously long hierarchies. Uh, so I think authoritarian management and a narrow research government agenda that seems to follow from that, or possibly follows from it, according to Peter Mandler, is a very big factor in the decline in academic freedoms. Another obvious factor is a government exercise called the Research Excellence Framework. R-E-F, for short, REF. Now, every seven or eight years, universities in Britain are measured according to their research output. You know, this is, this is to, to help create a, a league table of re research excellence. And the academics are encouraged to submit their journal publications for REF. Now, over the years since this exercise was first established, the conditions under which academics can submit their journals have become more and more restrictive so that at the last ref, the government would only allow journals that had been submitted to so-called top journals, because of course there's a hierarchy of journals just as there is for everything else these days. No, the government said that only journal articles that had been published in the top journals would be eligible for review. These are four so-called four-star journal articles. So. I don't know if your readers have any idea of what four-star journal articles are like. I mean, these are the so-called top journals in the field. I mean, they will guarantee you a career if you're an academic in the world's top universities, you know, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, Yale, Stanford. If you have a clutch of four-star journal articles, your career is made. Now, I can only speak 
for the areas in which I've worked, which are management and marketing, and say that my experience of these top journals is that they're extraordinarily narrow in their focus. I'll just give you one example because time is short. Um, in the field of marketing, <laughs> an article that, that got into one of the top marketing journals, the, the bottom line finding of this article was that direct mail shots work. There we have it, something that we've known for decades. Direct mail shots work. But there was an awful lot of maths. Um, I'm, not, I'm not maligning maths when I say that, Sarah. <laughs> but this, this, these were not earth-shattering findings by any manner of means. And my experience is that four-star journal articles are never going to rock the boat. They're always going to be working within existing paradigms. Just paid a fortune there to be told of something that's completely obvious, haven't we? Yes. You know, presumably some some kind of taxpayers' money has gone into these uh, articles and all this research, yes. and to be told that direct mail shots work. Well, that's like me saying a punch in the face hurts. Yes. Are you going to fund me so that I can do some research into this and 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 write an article about it? What a joke. Yes. So those are the type of articles that, in the main, and I don't like generalising, will fuel metrics as to the value of research across British universities. And then a third factor is, of course, legislation. And we're talking about factors that impinge on academic freedom. I mean, if you're working in an institution and you're being pressured to write a four-star journal article, what I'm trying to suggest is that this, uh, this constrains you and constrains the limits of what you can say, if you follow what I'm saying. So let's turn to another factor, legislation. Now, Universities in Britain have powers under a prevent anti-terrorist agenda to close down lectures on the grounds of alleged security risks. Well, you may think that sounds fine and dandy, but let me give you one instance of how this legislation was used. Um, back in March 2018, a lecture was shut down that was proposed at King's College London, KCL, as it's referred to now. And the lecture was going to be given by a resident lecturer and irony of ironies, the subject of the lecture was the scientific importance of free speech. Yep, that was the subject of the lecture. It was scheduled to be given by a lecturer at King's College London. And um, it was deemed to be high risk by the university on the basis that the event could be gatecrashed by protesters who were opposed to the lecturer's research. So the lecturer was shut down and the lecture with it. And that was a lecture on the scientific importance of free speech. That lecture was shut down at King's College London. And um, it was legislation in Britain that, that provided the underpinning for that. Now, fourth factor that impinges on academic freedom. And this is a big one, I have to say. And it's the, it's the subject of peer review. Um, articles do not get published in academic journals unless they have passed muster through the system known as peer review, where an editorial board, members of that editorial board, deem that an article is worthy of publication in that particular academic journal. And I would say that the whole system rests on academic peer review. And that's not an overgeneralization. No, the system rests on peer review. So what do worthy people think about peer review? Well, there's an awful lot one could say about this. Could be subject for a whole other discussion, Sarah. But if I just pull out two 
two editors of medical journals. And I, I talk about medical journals because health, health is a very important subject and medical journals are the purveyors of information on health. So here are the thoughts of Dr. Richard Smith, who is a former editor of the British Medical Journal, one of the premier medical journals. Uh, and he was uh, editor-in-chief uh, for and uh, chief executive, in fact, of the BMG Publishing Group for 13 years. So he should know a thing or two about peer review. I'm going to quote what he said. In his view, peer review is, quotes, a flawed process full of easily identified defects with little evidence that it works. That's stunning, I have to say. And I, <laughs> by the way, when I'm speaking of peer review, I'm somebody who's lived and breathed the experience of peer review, both as somebody who sat on editorial boards of journals and also been <laughs> at the receiving end of their judgments. And I've had a fair degree of success. I think in my time, I've had 70 conference papers and journal articles passed through peer review, you know, and they, 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 they've been ushered through the system and, and, and you know, they've been published uh, and given at, at conferences. But I have to say, in the course of my, my own personal experience, I've seen quite a lot that would make me understand what Dr. Richard Smith is saying when he says that it's a flawed process full of easily identified defects with little evidence that it works. And he's joined in those views with another great editor, this time Robbie Fox of The Lancer, another medical journal, who wondered, he obviously had a sense of humor, Robbie Fox, he wondered if anybody would notice if he were to swap the piles marked publish and the piles marked reject. And he used to joke that The Lancet had a system of throwing a pile of papers down the stairs and publishing those papers that reached the bottom. So fair, fair few questions could be asked about peer review. And so it seems that all of these factors are putting academic freedoms at risk. And without academic freedoms, as Dennis Hayes told us earlier, or as I referred to earlier, without academic freedoms, universities cannot really be said to be universities. So there we have it. And here we are now. According to an organization called Council for the Defense of British Universities. Can you imagine that such an organization even exists with a title like that? Council for the Defense of British Universities. According to them, British universities are seriously under threat and diverted from their central function of gathering knowledge free from interference and educating people to think critically and independently. So here we are today. We like to focus on solutions, don't we, Sarah? And I know how much you're doing in your own field of maths teaching to remedy some of the problems that you told me are rampant, not just in secondary schools, but also in primary schools. We like to be focused on solutions. And it does seem with so many voices telling us of problems that the only solution really is with a new, with a new institution. And um, a new in institution that rectifies all those problems that we referred to earlier. So some brave people have worked together to create a new university. It's Truth University. That's www.truthuniversity.co.uk. 
I'm involved in that, so I know a little bit about it. People will be encouraged, are being encouraged to undertake research, really no holes barred research. And they are supervised by a fantastic faculty of leading thinkers. And the best work will be freely published. And this is really what universities should be doing, freely publishing all the work that their academics are doing and not censoring findings that may be embarrassing, um, embarrassing perhaps by virtue of some of the funding that they're receiving. And so the funding of Truth University is all important. The funding will come from the students. So there are no vested interests here. And we have to work to create a system where information serves the public rather than serving either, I don't know, who governments or government leaders or industry leaders. I don't know what, what your thoughts are, Sarah, on these points. Well, first of all, I'm just thrilled that there is such a thing as Truth University because as somebody who's very interested in academics, it's a very concerning feeling to recognise that there is nowhere that one can go. So, for example, if I wanted to complete my master's and then go on to do a PhD, there isn't actually probably a single institution in the country that I would that would tolerate me because I, I will refuse to write things that they want me to write. And by that, I'm talking about diversity, inclusion and equity, where they make you write positive things about such uh, agendas. And I, I have nothing positive to say about those things. I think they are the antithesis of, of knowledge and learning. I think they only get in the way of genuine research And if you say those things, you're completely banned, cancelled and not allowed to participate. So from a personal level, I'm absolutely delighted that there is there is such a thing. Who knows? You know, maybe that list of PhD topics that I keep uh, or master's topics that I keep saying, oh, I'll never get funding to research any of these things. Maybe one day I will be able to research such things. And there are many, many other people who who also have wonderful ideas of things that they would like to look into, which are completely forbidden anywhere else in the country. So that's on a personal level, I'm, you know, I'm very grateful to yourself and, and the others who have come together to, to make such an institution. But also it must be a great comfort for parents of, of children who are in primary and secondary schools now to know that things for the, you know, things are already uh, in the pipeline for uh, university style or university standard education, truthful education, rather than indoctrination, because it must be terribly worrying. If you can imagine being a parent now of somebody who's roughly in the age of Ooh. 7 to 15 or 7 to 17 Ooh. years old, they parents must be thinking, you know, crumbs, where are my children going to be able to study? Because, of course, many of the people listening to this podcast don't want their children being uh, taught lies for like about climate change. Uh, GCSE history and climate change. What climate change? The climate's always changed. Do some more reading. Do some more research. That's not that's not real. That's completely fictitious. So it must be a, a great relief. So you know, thank you for for the work that you've you've done on this. It is uh, both on a personal, but uh, but I'm sure more broadly, it's it's a great thing that this actually exists. There is something happening for people like us now. There is a possibility of doing genuine research. I actually got uh, banned. I got in quite a lot of trouble when I did some research in my classroom. Mm. I, I studied two things. I studied um, I studied the children oh. in my classroom for... Um, I was trying to figure out why mathematics was so poor 
when children arrived at secondary school, and I actually traced the problems back to primary school, that was um, deeply unpopular. Oh. Uh, I, I was actually not allowed to be the liaison between primary and secondary schools because uh, they, they didn't like what I had to say about mathematics education. And then I also studied uh, the oh. special about the effects of teaching assistants on the outcomes for children with special educational needs. And oh, that got shut down by the county very, very quickly. I won't bore people with the with the findings because that's not interesting for everybody. But at some point, I'm, I will do some sort of lecture on what I found because uh, I, I didn't realise at the time that I was being shut down very quickly and, and sort of censored and banned. So I, I now sort of, now that I'm a bit older and a, hopefully a little bit wiser, I realised what was going on. I realised why the county the local authority were down at the school, uh, you know, playing merry hell because I'd found some inconvenient facts out. And I'd, I'd started to ask questions about, well, hang on a minute, we're spending all of this money mm. on teaching assistants, but it's not actually, it's not impacting the outcomes for children with special educational needs in any measurable manner. These children are still not scoring any any grades at GCSE. So we need to do something different because this isn't working. And my goodness me, the whole yes. world fell on my head. Uh, I, I I wasn't political. I wasn't at all political at that age. I wasn't remote, and I'm not now. I'm not interested. I just wanted the truth. I just wanted to. I couldn't understand why all this money was being spent and all of these things were being imposed on me in my classroom, and yet they weren't. That you could demonstrate they were not working. Extraordinary. Yes, and the system tends to not like being questioned. I found that out for for sure. <laughs> the hard way. Yes, you found that out. And, and the very hard way. And you mentioned that some PhD topics are not welcome. I don't even remember reading a few years ago about a psychotherapist who applied to a university, I think it was Bath Spa University, to undertake a research on regret amongst those who've experienced gender reassignment. And um, he wasn't allowed to register that topic for PhD, the subject of regret, which he he, he wanted from his experience as a psychotherapist, um, he wanted to argue was fairly common. So yes, it does seem that some topics... <laughs> well, whatever he wants to argue, nothing should be off limits. But you can't have a university where, where uh, studies are banned. How, how can topics be banned? Like that's, This is just somebody who wants to research something. Why can't you research anything? Well, you might ask, and that would certainly be my, my opinion. But what we've looked at today are some of the impediments to the free flow of information today. I regret that those impediments exist, but there are solutions. Thank yes. you very, very much for everything you've shared. Yeah, that's funny. I was just going to ask you, what do we do? What do we do, Gloria? What do we do next? What are the solutions? What can people listening to this do next? Even if it's just a small step, what can be done? Oh, my goodness. Um, I would say be aware of the problems. Awareness is at the beginning of, of so much problem solving, is it not? And be aware of the obstacles that may face you or your children if they do engage with the existing university system. And be aware of the alternatives that exist. That's about all we have at the moment. I mean, the alternatives are truth university on the one hand or being very careful in your selection of universities and courses on the other. What else is there beyond that? <laughs> the 6% where free speech is still allowed. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, I, I think in many ways we're living in very exciting times. 
because this is a time when some of these problems are coming to the fore in a way that they didn't in the past. And so this brings about an increased awareness. And I think that in itself is something extraordinarily positive, this increased awareness. I was just going to say, speaking of which, uh, surely questioning science would be a great place to start because you'll begin to mix with, with people who are involved, perhaps with the Truth University, but at least you're going to get a real debate, um, you know, something where you can go and speak mm. with razor-sharp minds, where you can challenge ideas, where you can present your own ideas. You know, getting back to the old-fashioned university, the original meaning of university, where yes. students and teachers get together to debate and discuss, to learn and to study, right? Absolutely, yes. Well, that, that, that was what kick-started the, the idea of a new university because debate actually flourishes at these events <laughs> and there's no one censoring anything anybody says. So, yes, I, I would encourage people who, who would like to come and join this thriving community of wide-awake minds and wide-awake speakers to email learningholidays at protonmail.com. That's learningholidays at protonmail.com to email and, and get some details. And when it's in a lovely part of the world, abutting on the Peak District. And some of us are actually coming up a few days before the conference in order to explore the uh, history of the area and, and the beauty of the, of the, of the area in the Peak District. So that's one way of becoming more aware. Yes, joining a community like that. As I mentioned, there's a new book coming out of Truth University. It's called the... Um, What's it called now? Yes, it's called The Dark Side of Academia, How Truth is Suppressed. So that's coming out in the second week, I think, of August. So you might want to, to buy that one. But yes, I, I think becoming more aware is the first step. And then just looking very carefully at the options facing you at that point. I think you and I are already acutely aware that the uh, realistic options to study in any kind of truthful manner are desperately, desperately small. But mm. if you are super careful with your selections, you can still find places such as the Truth University where you are able to research whatever it is you wish to genuinely research, which is a, a great relief. It's certainly a weight off my shoulders. And I highly recommend questioning science if you can get there, it's very near to the Peak District. I think it, is it in Knotts, the actual hotel where, where you guys are going to be staying. But it's the 10th to the 14th of August. I will leave the links in the description. And you can find more information at learningholidays at protonmail.com. That's learningholidays at protonmail.com. And of course, if you're interested in the Truth University, that's www.truthuniversity.co.uk. I will stick, I'll, I'll cut and paste that link into the description so that people Wonderful. should have it. Thank you very much once again for your time. You'll have to come back at some point, perhaps in the new academic year, and, and talk to us some more about this book. It sounds very intriguing, I must say. I'll certainly be reading that over the summer, so I'll get in touch with you and make sure yeah. I have a copy so I know what we're going to be talking about next. Um, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I hope that's the first of many books coming out of Truth University. So if any listener has a book that they're burning to write that they think could be of interest to other people and is rigorous in its approach, then please, please do make contact at the following email, which is info truth university, info truth university at protonmail.com. Thank you very much indeed. That is amazing. I certainly 
I'm relieved to find out that, that you're going to be publishing and that books are being published in addition to papers. It's extremely refreshing to hear this kind of uh, positive action because it's something that I don't think we're doing enough of. There's, there are some people who are taking lots of action, of course, but many, many people who are awake to what's going on are, are, are sort of paralysed with wondering, what can I do? What can I do? Well, there you go. There's some things you can do. You can visit the truthuniversity.co.uk website. You've got Questioning Science Conference this summer. You've got a new book coming out that's being published by Truth University. There is... there. This, this, this is the time where you can begin to take action. And for those of you who have children who are a bit younger, perhaps in primary or, and or secondary age children, I'm presenting Rescue Your Children. That's a three-night training course in August, the 4th, 5th, 6th of August at 8pm. And that is to enable you, if should you wish to, to withdraw your children from school and to educate them properly yourself at home. I will give you practical advice. I will help you to set up your child's perfect curriculum, the perfect curriculum for them as individuals. And that will be the 4th, 5th, 6th. For those of you who don't have children and or don't have grandchildren, you're not excluded. You can still help us. If you attend on the 4th, that's Thursday, the 4th of August, you will be able to help us to spread the word because actually education is one of the most important things. We are never going to defeat this tyranny until we attack the roots of it. The roots of the tyranny are the fact that the state indoctrinates children from a very young age into status, what I call statism, how wonderful the state is. Well, if, unless we start taking action and make, ensuring our children do grow up to think critically, to be decent people, to research rigorously and honestly in a, in a truthful manner, I don't see how we, how we ever win. I don't think we're ever going to wake up enough people. What we ought to be doing is stopping young people from being put to sleep by schools in the first place. And uh, that's my that's my pitch. So you don't have to have children to actually help with this initiative. If you attend the State of State Education lecture on the 4th of August, that's the first night of Rescue Your Children, the State of State Education, I will show you what's going on and I will show you what we can all be doing about it. Any, any closing thoughts um, from you, Gloria? I think it's tremendous what you're doing, Sarah. And I also admire the way you say things for what they really are, rather than beat about the bush. Uh, for example, your findings <laughs> regarding the value of teaching assistance or what you found in relation to standards of education. You're, you're very courageous <laughs> in saying things as, as you perceive them to be. Thank you, Gloria. I think I think it's fair to say that if I, if I can butcher the line, uh, when I see a spade, I call it a shovel. <laughs> yes. um, I think would perhaps be my little uh, my little riff on on uh, on it. Uh, when I see a spade, I shall call it a spade. That's my little riff. But thank you very much. I think sometimes it is important that we we cut to the chase because otherwise we uh, paralyze ourselves and we don't get to the solutions fast enough. So mm. I mean, I, I think it's important we have a range. It's important to have people who take their time, who consider things very carefully. But I think we also need a balance, uh, maybe a sprinkling of people such as ourselves that want to uh, enact solutions, you know, in, in the present moment, because there are young people who, who need this education, a real education now, not in 10 years or 20 years, you know, yes. they need this stuff in, yes. in, in the immediate moment. So we must all pull together and do what we can. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really, uh, really have enjoyed that. I, I always learn from you and I'm extremely grateful for everything that you are doing. And I will certainly like to talk to you off air a little bit more about your Truth University because I have lots of ideas I should like to explore. Thank you very, very much indeed. And I cannot wait to read the Truth University's new book this August. Thank you, Sarah.
Take back your individual sovereignty and that of your family. Visit sarahplumley.substack.com and subscribe for free to stay up to speed with all things education, not indoctrination. 